Imagine, it's December 2001, a couple of months after a pretty famous event in history, 9-11, 2001. Imagine it's December 2001, and you've decided to buy an airplane ticket, and you're going to head home, and you've been told how big your bag can be now, and you've... uh, You've been told that you need to arrive at the airport a couple hours early, and you don't believe it, but you've done it. And you're there, and, and you're making your way through the long, uh, snaky line, and you just can't even imagine. It's the first time you've flown since 9-11, and, and you just can't even believe the crowd and how long it's taking to get through the baggage check. And you're worried because you have contraband. You've got something deep in the recesses of your dop kit, of your toiletries bag. You realize you have something illegal. And you're worried. Your bag goes through the scanner and you look at the face and the furrowed brow of the TSA agent as you realize you're busted. And you make your way through the scanner and uh, you get wanded and patted down and the dogs come out and The sirens go off and everybody surrounds you and you realize they found it. It's your fingernail clipper. (laughs) It's true. For for about six months they were collecting those. I had a couple uh, taken from me within that time. Making the world a better place, a little safer place. One fingernail clipper at a time. You know, sometimes... uh, Other people shut down our freedom. The behavior of other people shuts down our freedom. Just because of what what happens, one person's choice outside of us, our freedoms get hemmed in. And sometimes our freedoms get hemmed in by what's going on inside of us as well. Sometimes it's uh, the choices we make and and we try to stretch out our freedom as far as it can go and and we forget our limits and the pleasures of life can become addictions and we find freedom becoming a tyranny. Sometimes freedom is shut down by others and sometimes freedom is minimized. It deteriorates because of ourselves. What makes freedom soar? What makes it rise? What builds up freedom? We're going to look at a passage about freedom, Galatians chapter 5. And the context of this is is simply that, that Paul is writing to a church that has forgotten the grace of God that yields freedom. That they're returning again to the letter of the law as though the law would save them, as though obedience alone would earn favor with God, and he's calling us back again to grace. What makes freedom soar? Starting with verse 13, chapter 5 of Galatians. For you were called to freedom, only do not use your freedom... As an opportunity for the flesh, whenever you see the flesh, usually it's, it means the sinful nature, sinful human nature. Sarks is that word. 
And it means sinful, broken human nature. Do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. See that contrast back to back. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word or one saying. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. But I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of your flesh. For the desires of your flesh are against the Spirit and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But... If you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Let's pray, let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We, uh, we think of the word law and we, we bristle at it, Lord. It feels like a limitation. Father, help us to know your word in a way that yields freedom. In Jesus' name, amen. What? What yields freedom? What brings freedom? We love freedom. I remember the first time I, I, I took my car and backed it out of the driveway. And I remember putting my arm uh, on the, the passenger seat and looking to the right and looking to the left to see if there was any traffic coming. And I looked back to the right and it struck me. I'm, I'm by myself. I'm 16 years old. I can go anywhere I want. I love this. We love freedom. What brings it up? What makes it rise? Let's look at, 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 at two wings of freedom. That freedom rises on two wings. The first wing is the wing of risk. The wing of risk tells me where I stop. It, it teaches me, risk teaches me the lesson of limits. Risk teaches me the lesson of limits so that I can know greater freedom. I can understand and experience greater freedom, the lesson of limits. It's great for kids to learn the lesson of limits on their own, to take risks, to make their own choices and, and to fail. You know, if, if, if a child has a remote control car, for example, and drives it into the ditch, just carelessly abuses it, and the next morning, a new one shows up. Mom and dad take away the lesson of limits. The child fails to learn it. But when a child learns the lesson of limits, when, when you know, he, she crashes that toy and, and destroys it carelessly, and then, you know, maybe it's a car, and then, and then a, a, a real car comes along. The lesson of limits has been learned already, that if you abuse something, that you're responsible for it. In the same way, the grace of God shows us our limits so that the law is itself a grace. Now, see if you can follow me on this. The law can be a grace when we understand that 
that what grace is doing is giving us a certain freedom to take the risk. The risk to do what? The risk to see our true condition. It's the freedom, the freedom that that Paul's talking about here in verse 13 is the freedom of conscience. The freedom of conscience. You see, if you and I have a freedom, if we know that the consequences, the ultimate consequences of our broken nature have already been dealt with, then we have the confidence, the freedom, to look fully in the face the real condition, not just what we did and the mistakes that we made and the failures that, that we failed, but, but the actual brokenness, the darkness of the human condition. We have the freedom to look at it in the face so that we can understand who we really are and won't continue in that way. You see, that's how the law becomes a grace. Now, what, what happens if we don't have this, this courage? What happens... If, if we don't have a freedom of conscience? Well, l- let me illustrate it by a, a recent study by a group of researchers from Northwestern and Harvard. They came together and they studied uh, cheating across the United States. They had a bunch of people, thousands of people playing the same games. And they watched them. And they knew where people were likely to cheat and they could see who the cheaters were and who the non-cheaters were. And then they interviewed them with a set of simple questions. What happened during the course of the game? And invariably, across the country, person to person, the people who did not cheat could recall what happened very well during the course of the game. And the people who cheated had trouble remembering anything. Why is that? Well, (laughs) it's a defense mechanism. Who likes to feel bad about themselves? Yeah, raise your hand. You like walking around just feeling guilty. Do you like that? Do you enjoy that? You know, almost as, almost as, as painful as fear is guilt. We don't like walking around feeling bad about ourselves. And so a lot of times what we do is we block out what we did. And these researchers, they, they, they put a label on it. They called it, they called it, ethical or unethical amnesia. I almost had ethical amnesia there for a minute. They called it unethical amnesia. That we block out because of the pain of of seeing who we really are and what we really did. Just just an incidence of, of cheating in a game can be painful enough to get us to block out the memory of it so we can't even remember what happened during the course of a game. How much more then is it painful to see the condition of our human nature. And so you see, what grace does for us is it gives us a freedom of conscience to be able to see our brokenness. You see, what these researchers discovered is that the people who are, are cheating and blocking out what they did, they are much more apt to repeat this behavior and not learn from it. They don't learn the lesson of limits. They forget that they did that. And they, they, they kind of go back to this default mode that they're, they're basically a good person. And so they never deal with their human condition. But what grace does for us is it gives us a certain kind of freedom. A certain kind of freedom. 
A freedom to be honest about what's going on. A freedom that, that, that teaches us the lesson of limits. And one of the limits is simply this. At the heart of broken, fallen, fleshly human nature. Right? It says, verse 13, don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. What does it mean by flesh? I said broken human nature. Well, what's at the center of it? Selfishness. Just self-centeredness, self-absorption, self, that I'm in it for me. Now see, you think, well, this, this doesn't sound very good. This doesn't sound like a freedom. This doesn't sound like freedom rising on a wing. You talked about freedom as a wing. This doesn't sound like I'm rising. It sounds like I'm sinking into the depths. Yes, that's not, that's not a bad instinct. But here's the gospel, and, and, and you have to understand this, Christian. Non-Christian, you have to understand this is what God is doing. He's giving us the ability to see greater depths of our human brokenness so that we may what? We may not continue in a pattern of that brokenness. We, we can admit it fully in the face that we can see our limits. And the limit is, the limits are, first and foremost, me, myself, and I. What a limit that is. You see, when we begin... When we begin, now we're going to turn to the second wing, and I want you to make the connection here. When you and I have the freedom of conscience to admit what's really going on in the human heart is about me, myself, and I, then we can see the limits, the limits of life on my own terms. And I can begin to embrace the second wing. I can begin to move from me to we. I can begin to move to the second wing that makes freedom rise. And that is the wing of relationship. See, I pointed out that Paul is putting uh, two contrasting images. Don't use your freedom as an opportunity to indulge the selfish nature. But rather serve one another in love. Now, that's interesting. It puts it starkly right alongside each other. Don't use your freedom to indulge this infernal nature, even though you may. You have the freedom of conscience. You have the freedom of conscience, so you can do that if you want. But what you're going to find is a deep dissatisfaction. Whereas, instead of indulging the sinful nature, you begin to find a greater sense of freedom in us, in we, in community. And we begin to learn the lesson of life together. We learn the lesson of limits with the freedom to risk. We learn the lesson of life together and the freedom that comes in redeemed relationships. Now, let me tell you about another study. You see, there, 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 there are two facets. Now, think of this, this, this idea of, of maybe relationships being like a diamond. I'm going to cut a couple of facets here. One facet is, is that we're designed for relationships. It's in our design, and we're going to be deeply dissatisfied with life unless we understand how to pursue redeemed relationships. How does that work? Well, we're designed. We're designed for relationships. Another group of researchers in the early 1900s noticed that in Rosetto, Pennsylvania, the incidences of heart disease was a quarter of what it was 
in the rest of Pennsylvania. And different, uh, different groups across the country began to, to hear about this Rosetto effect. They studied it, and they, they began to, to question out, were the people living in Rosetta, was there some sort of, of ethnic uh, distinction here? Was it just that, that genetically they were less disposed to heart disease? And they, they had an, a, an Italian-American kind of mixture in, in, their, uh, in, their, in their population. But, but in, in, in Bangor, right next door, they had the exact same population in different parts of Pennsylvania and and, and, and Delaware and New Jersey and other places they studied, it was the same kind of, of population. Well, they, they started to look at their lifestyle. Were they exercising more? No. Were they, were they drinking less? No. Were they smoking less? No. It was, it was all of the, the factors that they might measure were the same, but then they, they discovered one standout distinction in Rosetto that began uh, the, the research to, 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 to coin the Rosetto effect, and, and it's this distinction they had a very close-knit community. Morale was high. Relationships were trusting and deep and rich. There was a a, a strong, self-conscious sense of we over me. Michael Jordan put it this way. He said... Talent wins games, but team wins championships. Nietzsche put it this way. He said, the only door to the dungeon of self is the love of neighbor. That's why it says in the scriptures here, that's why it says in verse 14, it says, the whole law is summed up in in this one saying. It says one word. It really means one saying. Love your neighbor as yourself. We're designed for relationships. We're designed for we, not, not just me. And it's really difficult for Americans to embrace this. That's why I'm spending so much time on it, just camped out here. Emerson said, do your own thing, right? We love John Wayne. I love John Wayne. The idea of, of the self-made man, you know what the problem with the self-made man is, right? He worships his creator. Self. But what if we're created for community in a way that you haven't really embraced yet? What if the confidence that you have in your freedom of conscience might enable you for a better set of relationships, a stronger, richer, deeper, more trusting, more transparent kind of relating? What if... You were designed for it. You are. There's a design. But here's the most powerful part of the passage for me. Not only are we designed for relationships, but when we walk in the Spirit, there is an increasing desire for redeemed relationships. A desire. Verse 16, he says, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. There's a confidence in grace. There's a confidence in grace that Paul has that if we're truly 
walking by the Spirit, we will not gratify the desires of the Spirit, but uh, of the flesh, and, but that we will lead redeemed lives, changed lives. Now, 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 let me draw a contrast here. Religion cannot achieve this same effect. Religion cannot achieve this same effect. People are... Who, who, who live apart from grace are suspicious of grace. It says, what, what do you mean uh, I have freedom of conscience? You're saying conscience. I, 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 the, the consequences of, uh, of my fallen nature are already taken care of. Why would I obey? Why would I, why would I not use freedom? You're telling me I have the freedom to indulge the flesh? Yes, you do. You do have that freedom. But what I've already told you is you're going to find a deep sense of dissatisfaction. See, Paul has total confidence in grace. What's happening here is there, there, there's a group of people called the Judaizers, and they are, they're trying to say that all these, these Greeks that they're reaching out to with the gospel, they need to become Jews if they're going to be real Christians. If they're going to be real Christians, then they have to take on these, uh, these, external, uh, these external outward signs of, of an eth- ethnic community called Judaism. And what Paul is saying is, you're putting yourself under the law. You're no longer under the law. See, here, here's the crux of it. What grace does is this. Instead of approaching the law to perform, we now have the ability to obey in order to please God and not perform for Him. To please God and not perform for him. You see, Paul knows that everybody worships, everybody loves, you see, so everybody worships. And so if you look at religion, religion worships what? Our ability to try to get to God, to obey our way to God. But the Christian, the Christian has grace. And grace says this, God doesn't want you to try to strive for him. It says, cease striving and know that I'm God. I've reached to you so that you Do not have to spend your life trying to perform for me. Now you're free to please God. If you walk by the Spirit, you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. And so our desire begins to change, you see. Our desire begins to change because our freedom is there. Not to obey out of a sense of call to duty. Not out of a sense of fear. That, that God is rooting, tooting, hollering, and he's going to pull out his six-shooter and, and, uh, and, 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 and shoot us every time we mess up. But the freedom that we have of conscience allows us to see who we really are and to invest in relationships because on our own, me, myself, and I, life is deeply dissatisfying. And you say, well, Tim, how does that work? I mean, I walk by the Spirit and I will not, desi- I will not uh, gratify the desires of the flesh. I mean, I, I keep sinning. Yeah, well, join the club. But see, here's the thing. The more that we can understand the brokenness and admit to it and not this unethical amnesia, the more we can look fully in the face our condition and and appeal to God to, to change us, that we may walk in the Spirit, the more that we're relating to God, 
in the way, the square one way that he wants to relate to us, and that is to meet us at our deepest point of need. And so then, then virtue is actually possible. What, what's a vice? A vice is just being in the habit. Automatically, I do the wrong thing, right? Now, you're not thinking about breathing, right? You're just breathing. Well, now you're thinking about breathing. Stop it. Stop thinking about breathing. No, just before I said you're not thinking about breathing, you were just simply breathing. And, and, and what Paul is saying is this. When you walk by the Spirit, when you understand, you, you connect with this square one of a relationship with God by grace. You're in a position not to have to perform for Him, but to please Him through obedience. And that motive, being different, changes your desires. You see? The motive itself is different. The motive of obeying God is different. It's no longer a performance motive. It's a pleasing motive. You realize that you have the freedom to indulge the flesh and there are no eternal consequences for it. But there are some temporal ones. And you'll feel it. The emptiness. The addiction. But when you begin, again, at square one, that God has spoken that word of forgiveness over your life and live out of that place, your motive changes for obedience. And that begins to get in, and religion cannot do that. Yet, you see, it's 9-11. And 15 years later, we can look back on that day and, and recognize that a lot of the world is driven by fear. During World War II, we saw how, uh, in, in, in the early part of the 19th century, we saw that people in fear often gravitate towards the law because they love their security more than God. People uh, who begin to feel a creeping sense of deterioration in their cultures around the world. They begin to create a seedbed. They feel a seedbed of of fear and they want a strength and they look to human power for it. But what the gospel is saying and how the West has been shaped is that when grace gets in, it's the only thing that can really get in to change a human life. then people actually get better. And human relationship, the best of it, the kingdom view of it, begins to shine like a city on a hill. What makes freedom rise? You've got to take the risk of seeing who you really are. What makes freedom rise? Freed for relationship, we begin to rise together.